the best care I've provided for myself is permission, honestly, to not care as much, to not take on so much responsibility, and to just be there as it unfolds. Hello, brave friends. If you are on planet Earth right now, you probably have social media. It's a handy tool that connects us with friends, allows us to share our lives, and generally makes our lives easier. Well, except for when it doesn't. Let's just say those memories that pop up aren't always welcome. Today, we hear about a mom's early days navigating the medical system with a child battling a rare disease. After numerous emotional and confusing doctor visits, Amy Nyer's son was diagnosed with mast cell activation syndrome, as well as many other diagnoses. But the road to those diagnoses and answers was far from easy. I will let Amy take it from here. You know that feature on your phone and on Facebook that shows you old photos from that day, like five or 10 years ago? Well, that feature can go straight to hell. My son is seven and a half, and anytime a picture of him as a baby shows up that's older than about two years ago, my body goes into a complete trauma panic mode. My heart feels like it stops beating. I can't inhale. I can't exhale. My eyes can't even blink. My breath and my lungs, everything just freezes. The only part of my body that seems to work in these moments is my thumb, which reflexively scrolls past the picture as quickly as possible so that I can finally breathe again. It takes a long time to recover completely from these episodes, but after the image is gone, at least my body is no longer frozen in a time that is thank God, no longer my present reality. My son's early infancy and childhood were traumatic for him and for me. That time in his life brings up memories of him screaming in pain, covered in rashes and hives, and cyclically vomiting whenever he nursed. Memories of those early years include being told by doctors that I was just being an overanxious new mom, that nothing was wrong, and that I just needed to try harder to feed him or when I went to multiple lactation consultants who saw it as their job to fix my positioning and nursing techniques with the underlying message that this was my fault. Any reminder of his first several years immediately brings to mind the three most awful words in modern medicine that haunt me to this day, failure to thrive. In some pictures of my son from 2015 up through 2017 and 2018, he looks sickly. His eyes are sunken in, too skinny for a baby, despite all my best efforts. It's physically painful to look at those pictures. And in other pictures during that time, he looks okay. Not like a chubby baby by any means, but not scary thin either. Certainly not failing to thrive. And this hurts in a different way. Did he really deserve that failure to thrive diagnosis? Was it really that bad? It's the mindfuck that comes with rare diseases and poorly understood medical conditions and a baby who cannot describe how he's feeling and what his body is experiencing. It's the gaslighting from physicians that say it's all in my head, that my baby is fine, while simultaneously slapping a failure to thrive diagnosis in his charts. 
And then there's the fear of losing my child. It's the fear that's still there. It creeps up every now and then in the most profound, gut-wrenching ways. The fear that takes my breath away, like the pictures in my phone, but can't easily be swiped away. Back then, when he was a baby, it was a daily fear, a constant fear. I was terrified he would have a serious allergic reaction or choke in his sleep. I was afraid that he'd stop eating altogether and not survive. I was afraid we couldn't afford his medicines, none of which were covered by insurance at the time. I was afraid that any safe foods he had, he would lose. I was terrified that a doctor would not believe me that I was trying my best for my child and then take it a step further by having Child Protective Services remove him from my home. These fears didn't come from nowhere. I knew families that dealt with all of these situations and worse. My son did lose safe foods all too often, and there was a time when we truly could not afford his medicines. When you have a baby with rare diseases, especially one with a failure to thrive label, your life becomes controlled by fear and shame. Over the years, I have made my mental health a priority, and my life is no longer driven by anxiety, shame, and fear, although those feelings do still creep up on occasion. Pictures of my son from his early childhood are still painful reminders of the trauma from those years, and that may always be the case. But at age seven and a half, my son is now more medically stable than he's ever been. And because of how far he's come and how far we've all come as a family, pictures of him from recent years now elicit feelings of gratitude and calm. I feel grounded and I experience true joy when I look at recent pictures of him. Now, if only we could change the settings on those damn apps and social media websites. What a hard story that was. Thankfully, in our journey, we have not had to advocate and advocate to get a diagnosis. Ryan was diagnosed at five weeks of age. I didn't go through what many of you go through, which is going to your pediatrician, going to specialists, going to geneticists, going to different doctors, reporting what's going on, reporting your observations, reporting what's not going on with your child, only to be dismissed, only to be told you were an anxious mom. I know that you will relate to Amy's story. And now please enjoy my conversation with the wonderful Amy Nyer. Hi, Amy. Welcome to Brave Together podcast. Hi, so good to be here. I'm so glad to be with you. You know, I adore you like you are my little sister. <laughs> mm, feeling is so mutual. Ah, thank you. So I love your writing. You are a great writer and you know, I appreciate just complete honesty and you know, your second line just grabbed me, of course, because it, it's visceral. I could feel it. And I understand that feeling. I think our audience will really appreciate the story and I think it will absolutely resonate. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I feel the same about your writing. I think for me, writing is just something I've been doing since becoming a mom. That's just a way for me to process my feelings and also just share with other people who may experience the same things I do. So in this story, we're focusing on how memories can be either traumatic. I mean, they can be terrific. The pop-ups can be beautiful. And so 
oh, oh my goodness. But in this case, you're highlighting how it can be so traumatic because of what we go through when we have medically complex children. And it's so incredibly intense in the early days. Yes, very much so. What word comes to you when you just think about those early days? Panic, fear, and, you know, just grasping. I think that those early days, my husband and I were just so clueless as to what to do to help our child. And he was really sick, but we also didn't have a lot of support. We did find support. Eventually, we ended up with a great medical team. I don't think the story really shares on that part, but a lot of those early years were really hard. And in the early years, did you have a diagnosis? Remind me, Amy. Yeah. So he was diagnosed with mast cell activation syndrome or MCAS. He was diagnosed at eight months. It it really wasn't until he was about six months old that we finally, like five or six months old, that we finally found a doctor who had a clue what was going on. And we're so lucky because we only had to wait six, seven, eight months to get a diagnosis and to have a doctor who understood. But prior to that, there was a lot of doctors, medical professionals, nurses, lactation consultants that thought I was an over-anxious mom, that I was overreacting. I mean, even the ones that agreed that it's not normal for a baby to be vomiting profusely all day, every day. It was just like, it must be how you're nursing him. <laughs> so, Oh my gosh. Yeah, we got a lot of that. Is that why in your piece, because I noted how you said that your life becomes controlled by fear and shame. So not only fear, not only panic, not only grasping, but you, you said shame. And I'm now wondering if that's what also you're referring to, because it sounded like these experts and professionals were shaming you. Yeah, it, shame came from a couple different places. I think when you tell a, a nurse or you know any healthcare provider that we came across, you know what was going on, and they don't believe you, you feel so unheard, and you feel like I must, there must be something wrong with me. I must be not doing my job. I must, I must be doing something wrong. And luckily, his primary pediatrician always had our back, and he always believed me. But not everybody else, you know, so, so that contributed to the shame, everything I ate, he was allergic to through my breast milk. And another part of the shame is, as a mother, you feel like you should be able to feed your child, it's ingrained in your DNA to feed your child. And I couldn't do that. Or I was but it was making him sick. And he wasn't able to tolerate what I was giving him. So even when I cut down my diet to just a few foods, he was still really sick and losing weight. And I think that, you know, that shame comes in too, where the, the shoulds, I should be able to, I should be able to feed my child, I should be able to help him feel better. And then you mix that with, oh, if you lean forward more, if you lean back more, or if he, you know, latches in this way or that way, or you probably ate some dairy and you didn't know it when I was like eating nothing, essentially. And, you know, so there was a lot of that right. um, chicken and water. Second guessing. Mm-hmm. So, how did you build a muscle or create a muscle there when you were being shushed? You were being bypassed. You were not being taken seriously. You were given, you know, sort of trite responses and answers. Like, how did you get to a place of advocacy and less self doubt? 
Well, I think his pediatrician helped in that um, he never gave up on us and he did always believe me. And so when I would try everything he told me to try and it didn't work, he would order another test or refer us somewhere else. And he referred us to people who are probably great when it comes to other conditions. But when it's a rare disease that, you know, maybe they've never heard of, they don't, they don't know. So you get faulty information, but it was when we got referred to his GI doctor, his current GI doctor, and we were able to like really identify what was going on. And she was so validating. That gave me a lot of confidence because then I knew I wasn't, you know, losing my mind that I was really seeing what we were seeing and that there was a reason for it. So having her on our side, that was extremely validating social media, finding other families that were going through similar situations. That was very validating and gave me the confidence to know that this is a thing. This is, I guess, considered a rare disease, but I think it's probably less rare than the medical community gives it credit for. And, you know, even after that, though, he has a couple other conditions. One of them is hypermobility syndrome or hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And the first geneticist we were referred to was very dismissive and basically told us, like, your kid's fine, wouldn't do any testing, which wasn't the case. Like, you know, he, he ended up being diagnosed with it later on with a different geneticist. But I think that throughout the years, you know, he's seven and a half now, and it's less common for me now to experience that gaslighting, to experience shame from like, you know, directed by a medical professional, but it does still happen. It, I get it. Every once in a while with a new provider, when that happens, like we don't need that person in our lives. We will move on. Good for you. Ryan was diagnosed with failure to thrive as well because he couldn't suck and mm. he didn't cry for food. And he ended up with a G-tube his first year. But that phrase, failure to thrive is so, it's so heavy. And yeah, it, it describes what's going on. So I understand what's going. I understand where, where it comes from, but it just feels so weighty. It sure does. Failure to thrive. Absolutely. My least favorite term <laughs> ever. And I think because as a new mom, you take such ownership over the survival of your child. And so that failure to thrive feels like your failure. I took it on as my failure. And my son also has a feeding tube. He got it when he was a little bit over two. And that you know, was life-saving for him and was the reason why he was able to get rid of the failure to thrive diagnosis. But even him getting a feeding tube at the time felt like another failure because we couldn't get him to gain weight Mm. without it. Mm -hmm. And don't you think that felt like a failure just because of like our cultural indoctrination? Like you should be able to nurse, you should be able to take care of your baby, you should be able to feed, like all these things that should just naturally happen. Is that where that arose from? I, I absolutely, it's cultural, you know, breast is best and all those things. Like, meanwhile, we were feeding him this like very bizarre concoction that was created by a dietitian that was keeping him alive. So um, <laughs> certainly wasn't coming from me. And it took a lot of time, a lot of therapy, great therapy that is still ongoing to realize that the shame that I feel or that I felt, I don't think I'm really currently in a place where I feel sh- so much shame, but it was such a big part of our lives at the beginning. And 
just not being able to feed my kid, not being able to help him gain weight, seeing him so sick. Everything felt so like on me, my responsibility. And I think that over the years, I've done the work to take a little bit of that responsibility off of me and realize that he is his own person. His body is his own body. And it's not my responsibility to ensure that he gains weight. I will provide what he needs, follow the doctor's orders, and his body is going to follow the path that it's going to follow. I appreciate you saying that because I... I I hope some of our listeners really took that in because we can only do so much, right? And we're doing everything we can for our children, but we cannot control outcomes. We cannot control Mm -hmm. the beautiful malfunctions that are going on in our kids' brains and bodies or bones or blood or organs or whatever it is, whatever the story is, whatever the diagnosis is. We have to make peace. We have to radically accept that we are doing everything we can for our children and that that is good and good enough, right? Yes, that is good. And I mean, it's all we can do. We can radically love our children, but you can't take on the responsibility of how they feel and what they do and how their body digests food or doesn't digest food. We can be there for them and accept them for who they are and how their bodies function and support them the best way that we can. I'm a medical professional. I'm a physical therapist and I'm not my son's physical therapist. If I were a GI doctor, I would not be his GI doctor. You know, I can't take that responsibility because I feel like if I were to be his medical professionals, I would probably feel more responsible, but we're, we're parents. That's, you know, our job is to help our children become as independent as they are going to be, keep them as healthy and as safe as they're capable of being and to love them unconditionally. And also with the understanding that they are our responsibility only to the extent that we provide them with what they need to do what they are going to do. And my my journey as his mom is to make sure that I don't go down that path of shame and feeling overly responsible for things I just have no control over. And it's something that I, I work on still. Yeah. So I would invite our listeners to pause and to ask, what am I trying to control that I actually have no control of? What am I taking responsibility for that I actually don't need to take responsibility for? What am I heaping on myself? What what am I heaping onto my already very tall, tall, you know, long list of things that I do, must do, need to do every day for my child that's unnecessary? You have permission to pause. You have permission to ask yourself this question. And that's such a a great question. And it's such a great point too, is we are so responsible for so many things. Like if I don't call the pharmacy, we're not getting the medicine. If I don't pay the bills, you know, we're, it's all these things. We are so responsible and there's so much that falls on our plate as parents in general, but then also with all these exceptional additional things that we do for our children. And that in and of itself is so much. So if we could give ourselves permission to not be feeling so responsible of the things we really can't control. I think that frees us up so much. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So when I was reviewing your story, Amy, and you talk about failure to thrive, it just makes me wish that professionals, as they're delivering that diagnosis, that they also take aside as caregivers and say, okay, 
I don't want you to fail to thrive amidst caregiving. What Mm. is something that you are going to do to prevent that from happening to you emotionally, mentally, physically? Yeah, that would be something. I think that that opens up a whole topic that I think we could talk about in an entire other podcast on self-care, on the expectation that, which I feel like self-care in and of itself can feel like overwhelming because of how little time we have as parents. But in my journey, and when I think about how I felt at the beginning compared to how I'm feeling now, which I'm sure will be different in another five to 10 years, but the best care I've provided for myself is permission, honestly, to to not care as much, to not take on so much responsibility, and to just be there as it unfolds. I like that. Be present. It sounds like you're practicing really being present and mindful and intentional. What is saving you right now in the midst of being a caregiver, being a working mom and a wife, what's saving you right mm. now? I have a, a daily meditation practice where I do practice mindfulness and I exercise when I can. Typically it's like six o'clock in the morning running by the beach and honestly just seeing the ocean, being out in nature. Those are the things that I, that I do that really fill my cup. Mm, so glad to hear that. So glad to hear that. So, okay, everyone, you have permission amidst caring for a medically complex child to get out and be in nature or do something that fills your cup because we mm-hmm. we want you to thrive amidst all of this. We do. We do. Anything you didn't say in thinking about this story, Amy, that you want to tell our listeners? I think if, if there are any parents out there who have experienced, you know, looking at photos and feeling that trauma, like just feeling re-traumatized when they see photos, when other people seem to look at old pictures of their kids and, you know, feel great. I just want to validate that it's normal and it's okay. And you're not alone. I think that part of the added trauma of it is just the expectation that I should feel joy when I see pictures of my child as a baby. And um, that's not always the case. And that's okay. And that doesn't stop us from moving forward. But it also does help me from dwelling in the past as well. I think that you know, there might be times where it's hard again. Right now we're in a we're in a good spot and I'm really grateful for that. But just to anybody listening, your experience is valid and, and you're not alone. So good. Absolutely. So if like in Amy's story, that old pictures stir up trauma or stir up sadness or stir up grief or stir up angst, it's normal. And we see you and we hear you and we validate you. You are definitely mm-hmm not alone. Amy, thank you so much for being willing to write your story and share your story and come back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me and chatting with me. I just absolutely adore you. I adore We Are Brave Together and the Brave Together podcast, and I'm honored to be part of it. Thanks so much for listening today. Do us a favor and leave us a review and a rating so that this podcast can get into the ears and the hearts of more and more moms. Did you know that Brave Together podcast is an extension of our nonprofit organization called We Are Brave Together? We Are Brave Together serves an international community of caregiving moms by offering support groups that are virtual and in-person, educational resources, and low-cost weekend retreats and we offer retreat scholarships. We represent all 50 of the United States and 21 countries around the world. 
We are here to remind you that you are not alone. You are braver and stronger than you think, and that girlfriends who get you are sacred and mandatory. To join us today, go to wearebravetogether.org. Our support and sisterhood await you.